This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Lots of eyes are on young people this election. Will they turn out in larger numbers than they traditionally have? A new youth politics survey shows the young people who are more likely to vote are suburban, identify as liberal, and cite school shootings as their top concern. Here to talk with us about the national survey with a Colorado focus is CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Ryan. Tell us about this survey. It's a nationally representative sample of more than 1,000 18 and 19-year-olds who haven't voted before. It was carried out by the Education Week Research Center. That's part of the publication Education Week. Typically, polls focus on youth voters up until the age of 29. So this one was kind of interesting. Yeah, that means that if they're 18 and 19 now, they have not voted in a midterm or presidential election at this point. That's right. And and we followed up with some of the respondents. And I also reached out to some more students in rural Colorado. Which political parties did young people across the country tend to align with? About a third aligned with the Democratic Party, a quarter were independent, 20 percent were Republican, and 20 percent were not registered to vote. So that's about the same number of Democrats in the general voting population, but far fewer independents and fewer Republicans among these very young voters. Before we hear from some young Coloradans, talk about some of the top findings from this national poll. It finds youth who plan to vote are more likely, as you mentioned, Ryan, to be suburban, identify as liberal, but also be Asian, be a current or former private school student, and engage in civic-related activities. Very young voters identify school shootings as their top concern. And what about for youth who don't plan to vote? What can we say about them? Yeah, they're more likely to be politically moderate, they're unengaged in civic activities, and their top concern is guns and gun control. Well, according to this survey, do most young people plan to vote? Yeah, two-thirds said they did, but we don't know if they'll actually do it because uh, just 22 percent of young people voted in the 2014 midterms. Oh, one in, one in five. OK. Yep. And for young people who don't plan to vote, more than a third said they weren't interested in voting. A quarter weren't familiar with the issues or candidates. And for some high school seniors, uh, they told me they're too busy. They lead pretty complicated lives. I talked to 18-year-old Heather Vance. She's from Eckley, population 257 on the Eastern Plains. Uh, Vance considers herself a Republican, but she's not registered to vote. I just haven't had the chance to go and register yet. I've been busy with school and all the other activities that I'm in, and it's just not on my top priority list at the moment. And another student, Corbin Meard of Yuma, he's also 18. He said he does plan to vote, but he hadn't registered yet when I talked to him. 12% of students in the survey didn't know how to vote. I asked Meard if he knew where to register. Um, I think so. I think you just go down to the courthouse. And he's right. But Meard represents the quarter of youth in the survey who aren't familiar with uh, issues or candidates. I asked if he's aligned with one of the political parties. No, not really. I don't think so. Just, like, I do hear stuff, but I haven't really, like, set my opinion on what I believe in yet. He sees voting as a responsibility that he'll take on when he gets out of the house, uh, when he's on his own. And like most in the poll, Meard felt he should vote to make his voice count, and he says it's good for the country. Maybe a good reminder here that Colorado has same-day registration, so... If young people have been on the fence and want to register, they have really until Tuesday to do that. Jenny, let's shift to a a very different young person who certainly plans to vote. Erin Mortensen is a recent high school graduate from Littleton. 
Yeah, she's 18. She leans Democrat. She's motivated to vote for a clear reason. Because I want to see change within our Congress. I'm not super happy with a lot of the decisions that have been happening recently. And so I want to put political leaders who will represent my interests in Congress. Looking at the survey here, Jenny, uh, a third of these young respondents say one reason they're casting their vote is for or against the direction of the Trump administration. Yeah, Mortensen says the Trump factor has engaged her more politically, and she says she strongly disagrees with many of the president's positions. Like building a wall at the border, I believe immigration is a positive thing and that there's no such thing as an illegal person. And most recently with the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, I was really, really upset that the Senate decided to confirm him and vote him in. In the survey, nearly 40 percent of respondents get their information from family and TV news and YouTube. Uh, What about Mortensen in terms of her sources of information? She says her parents didn't discuss politics much, but that left her to form her own political opinions. And with high school friends, she regularly had political discussions and feels strongly that she shouldn't be complacent. Uh, To prepare for voting, Mortensen went on each of the candidates' websites to see if they mentioned issues that she's passionate about, the environment, LGBTQ rights, and gun control issues. Let's talk about guns for a moment. So earlier this year, a gunman killed 17 students and staff members at a Florida high school. And Jenny, we saw students mobilize, hold demonstrations across the country. Did that incident actually increase political engagement among young people? It did indeed. Uh, Close to half of the respondents said Parkland increased their political engagement. School shootings are a top issue among young people. Guns are the top issue for Heather Vance from rural Eckley, but that's because of her worries about gun control. She says it's what makes her lean Republican. Her family's always lived in the country and she shoots 22 caliber guns. Not only for fun, but also to protect myself. And when looking at it from the Republican side to the Democratic side to all the other sides. I fit more in with the Republican side, seeing as these guns are for our self-defense. We live out where it may take 20 or 30 minutes for someone to come and help us out, which could be the end of your life or not. And guns and gun control was the one issue Vance was passionate about, and she wasn't really interested in other issues at this point in her life. She says if she were to vote one day, she'd go online to read about the different candidates and issues, and she'd like to talk to other voters outside her family to get opinions from a wide variety of people. What about Erin Mortensen, that high school graduate from Littleton who plans to vote? Is she more in line with the other young voters mobilized by school shootings? Yes, she is. Uh, This is a person who came of age with several traumatic shootings close by. She says she grew up hearing about Columbine and then remembers a day in eighth grade when her school was put on lockdown because of a school shooting nearby. And that happened to be the Arapahoe High School shooting. It made Mortensen think that could happen at her school. And that was really impactful to me and made me start paying attention. Along with the Aurora movie theater shooting, my older sister was like really considering going to that theater During that day, we knew someone, my family was really close to someone that was involved with that shooting and actually ended up being hospitalized because she got shrapnel on her. So that's just, the gun violence has really impacted my life. Well, finally, Jenny, the survey looked at civics classes. I wonder how that impacts whether or not young people plan to vote. 
Yes, it does. Uh, students who've never taken civics are less likely to plan to vote. A civics government class is required, by the way, to graduate in Colorado. So Corbin Meard, the young man from Yuma we heard from earlier, he's in a government class right now, and that may be the impetus he needs to get to the ballot box. Maybe someday, if not this one. Right. Thanks for being with us, Jenny. You're welcome, Ryan. Jenny Brundine is CPR's education reporter talking to us about the youth votes, which we'll obviously have a clearer picture of tomorrow. Speaking of tomorrow, CPR News special coverage election night in Colorado starts at 6 p.m. Live results and analysis with our teams in the field and here at CPR headquarters. There's a lot at stake in the Colorado governor's race, but for one man, it's literally a matter of life and death. Nathan Dunlap is on death row for killing four people at a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant 25 years ago. As CPR's Benta Berkland reports, it'll likely be up to the next governor to decide whether Dunlap is executed. The Dunlap decision actually fell on Governor John Hickenlooper's watch. But as the execution date neared, Hickenlooper granted a temporary reprieve. But crucially, he didn't grant Dunlap clemency, leaving it to the next governor to ultimately decide whether Dunlap should live or die. Republican State Treasurer Walker Stapleton supports Colorado having the death penalty on the books. He says he would proceed with Dunlap's execution. Here he is during the final gubernatorial debate hosted by the Denver Post and Channel 7. I don't believe it's a role of the governor to re-adjudicate something that's been decided by a judge and a jury. It's something that I would have to do with a heavy heart, but I would have a period of time that would study the most effective means of carrying out something that has already been decided. Democratic Congressman Jared Polis told the Colorado Independent he would sign a bill to repeal the death penalty in Colorado if one landed on his desk. Polis calls capital punishment outdated, ineffective, and costly. But he also says he has no problem following the current law as it stands. During that same Denver Post debate, he wouldn't say if he would grant Dunlap clemency. What I would do as governor is review the case, talk to the victims, make an informed decision. And I don't think it's a type of decision, literally a life and death decision, that should be politicized uh, during a campaign. About a decade ago, Colorado came close to repealing the death penalty. Democrats are already planning to introduce a bill to repeal it during this upcoming legislative session. But even if they gain control of the legislature, it's one hot-button issue at the Capitol that doesn't fall along party lines. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Learn where the candidates for governor stand on other issues with our online voters guide at CPR.org. It's also the place to get up to speed on other important races and this year's many, many ballot measures. Let's talk about trust, because the question of trustworthiness takes on new dimensions in the digital age. Think about hopping into a stranger's car, even though they're not a licensed taxi driver. I mean, Uber by that, or Lyft. CPR's Brad Turner introduces us to a woman you can trust on this topic. Rachel Botsman has built a career on the subject of trust. The easiest way to think of trust is that it's a bridge between the known and the unknown. Botsman teaches at Oxford University. She studies how we perceive trust in banks, governments, and other institutions, and how that trust is changing. It's like the social glue that holds society together. 
Botsman talked about trust, and particularly how trust in digital spaces can be hard to define at the Aspen Ideas Festival recently. She says when we stay at someone else's house through Airbnb, that requires some trust. When we become a host on Airbnb and let other people rent our home for the night, that requires more trust. And it's the users who decide who's trustworthy, not the business itself. Because trust is something that is given to you. You can't decide to rebuild trust. You can decide to be more trustworthy. Other people decide whether to give their trust. I think about trust as a continual process of something that is given to you. Botsman says trust has fascinated her since she was just five years old when her parents hired a nanny to look after Rachel and her brother. And I'll never forget the woman who came into our house. She was a woman called Doreen, and she had this big mop of curly hair, and she wore these big glasses. She had this very, very thick Scottish accent. And the thing I remember so distinctly is that she was wearing a navy uniform with a bonnet because she had told my parents the reason why she wanted to be a nanny was that she loved helping people and that she was a member of the Salvation Army. Now, all these things, the Scottish accent, the glasses, the Salvation Army uniform, they are what we call trust signals. And trust signals are very important. They are clues or symbols that we knowingly or unknowingly use to decide whether someone is trustworthy or not. Now, the unfortunate thing is that some signals are louder than others. And very untrustworthy people often know how to manipulate these signals. Now, Doreen lived with us for almost 10 months. And I remember her being very cheerful and reliable and fun to be around. And there wasn't anything really strange about her. And then one weekend, she disappeared. And my Sunday night, my parents were quite worried So they went round to our neighbor's house, because our nanny was friendly with their nanny, and said, you wouldn't know where Doreen is by any chance. And he said, well, it's really funny that you've come round, because I've just found out that your nanny and our nanny are running the largest drugs ring in North London. I love this story, because I like to remind my parents that they left me in the care of a drug-dealing armed bank robber for more than 10 months of my life. Um, My parents, they are actually smart people. (laughs) They are usually quite rational people. But they thought they had enough information to make a decision about Doreen, when in reality they faced something called a trust gap. And this is so important when it comes to trust, that the illusion of information can be far more dangerous than ignorance. Botsman's fascination with trust never went away. She's especially interested in how new digital technologies have altered our concept of trust. Has new technology made us smarter about deciding who to trust? Or has it sped things up and made it more confusing when we think about who's trustworthy? She illustrated this idea with a quick survey of the audience in Aspen. She put the logos of three big tech companies on a screen behind her. Google, Facebook, and Amazon. You now can clap. I want you to clap for the company that you trust the most. You can only clap once, right? So if you think that you trust Google the most, clap now. 
If you trust Facebook the most, clap now. <laughs> okay. Um, if you think Amazon, you trust Amazon the most, clap now. Okay, so I think Amazon is the clear winner there. Now, why did I make you do this exercise? Because it's a rubbish exercise. It's, it's a terrible exercise, and I did it for that reason. Because this is how we talk about trust. Do you trust this person? Do you trust this institution? Do you trust this company? And we forget this really basic point. To do what? Because trust is so contextual and subjective. Amazon is a really interesting one. I think you're clapping because when you place an order with Amazon, you trust that it's going to arrive within the next hour or the next day. If I'd asked you, do you trust that Amazon pays fair taxes or treats their employees well, we would have got a really different response. So this is really important when we keep hearing about trusting crisis or we don't trust this person, we don't trust that organization, we must keep in mind that trust is highly subjective and it's highly contextual. Botsman broke down three types of trust that have covered thousands of years of human history. For most of that time, there was local trust. It's when we lived in small villages and communities and trust was largely face-to-face. Then came the rise of urban areas and international trade and a new kind of trust. So we invented what we call institutional trust. We invented corporate brands. We invented intermediaries. We invented risk mechanisms. And trust stopped flowing directly between people and started to flow between institutions. And those two historic types of trust are still around, but they're being disrupted by a new kind of trust for our digital age. That we call distributed trust. And it's a trust in sort of going like full circle is flowing again between individuals through networks and systems and platforms. But it can operate in ways and on a scale that we've never seen before. And distributed trust forces us to think differently about platforms like Facebook and Uber. They're not institutions in the classic sense. So much of the activity is distributed among users. But when something goes wrong, like anonymous trolls spreading false headlines or Uber passengers abusing the rating system for drivers, we still look for an institutional answer to the problem. There's one concept that a lot of commentators call for at a time like this. Greater transparency. Botsman thinks that's the wrong answer. Now, what's interesting is that when people don't really understand the problem, or when a system has got so big, like when it's a network monopoly like Facebook, rather than having these very difficult conversations, we think the solution, and we've seen this with banks, that if everything is more transparent, this is going to magically restore trust. This isn't the way trust works. More transparency doesn't equal more trust. There's kind of a cap. Think about the definition that we talked about, the definition of trust. Trust is a confident relationship to the unknown. If we need things to be transparent, we've kind of given up on trust. Highly transparent societies, highly transparent. Think of personal relationships, friends that you might know where they need to know every single thing about their partner. 
organizations where you have mass CCs on emails or like 22 people in a meeting, all in the spirit of transparency, these are low trust organizations. So I think one of the dangerous things that's really taken hold, that's become part of this narrative that trust is in crisis, is that if everything becomes more transparent, as a society, we're going to have more trust. I think this is a terrible end goal. Transparency isn't this moral high ground. It's actually the opposite of building a high trust society. So if transparency isn't the end goal, what is? Botsman has an alternate suggestion. It's trustworthiness. And there are four parts to that. Be competent, be reliable, be benevolent, and most importantly, have integrity. Integrity is like the holy grail. If you think about situations, it can be political situations, romantic situations, all kinds of situations, where trust wobbles is when integrity breaks down. Think of, go back to the Facebook example. Integrity is not just about honesty and fairness. Integrity is about a fundamental question. Do your stated intentions align with mine? Do your intentions align with mine? And when there's a misalignment of intentions, or when we fool people inauthentic about our intentions, that is corrosive to trust. Now, these four traits, they're very hard to assess in humans. And as I said, untrustworthy people are very good at manipulating, sending signals that confuse us around these traits. Think of Doreen, the dodgy nanny, right? She was competent and she was reliable. You could even argue that she cared. I'm not sure her intentions were aligned with my parents. Now, this is hard in humans. It becomes even harder when we're trying to judge the trustworthiness of machines. Botsman tells this funny story about her daughter, Grace. Grace learned how to use Alexa, that's Amazon's voice-controlled virtual assistant, when she was just three. Grace started with a simple question for Alexa. What's the weather like outside? A lot of questions about the weather. But this is actually something very normal we do with technology. We test it with things that we're familiar with. Then she asked Alexa to play music from the movie Sing. Which is her favorite movie. So we heard the soundtrack from Sing and then Frozen over and over again. Then Grace used Alexa to order something. She figured this out on her own and ordered her favorite treat, blueberries. And she couldn't believe when they arrived, right? Like any of you got young children will know they have no power and control in their life. So she can speak to a speaker and these things are going to arrive at her home. It was like magic. Then things got interesting. Grace asked Alexa what she should wear that day. Alexa used its built-in camera to rate Grace's furry hat and giraffe purse. Then Alexa offered to sell Grace some complimentary accessories. Alexa made a sales pitch and a fashion critique to a three-year-old. Botsman says technology doesn't simply do things for us anymore. It decides things like whether or not our outfit looks good, and whether it can sell us some new accessories. Now, when technology is doing things, you only need to assess, is it competent and reliable? When technology is making decisions, you have to start to understand its integrity, its intentions, its benevolence. How on earth do I teach the intentions of Amazon to a three-and-a-half-year-old? 
So this is a real challenge that we face, is how do we start to trust the intentions of machines? One of the things, though, that we tend to do, and we all do it as users, as citizens, as consumers, is we outsource this responsibility. That we talk about technology like it's something above us, that it controls us. That we blame what's happening, say, in elections, and misinformation, we blame it on the platforms. And a lot of the issues actually lie with us. Because one of the things that we do in our lives, one of the reasons why many of us even have Alexa in the bedroom, is we let convenience trump trust in so many areas of our lives. I did this just the other day. An Uber pulled up. I really didn't want to get in that car. I looked at the thing. It said 4.7. I was really late. I jumped in the car. I let convenience trump trust. And so one of the things I think we need to do, and this is actually an empowering way of thinking about fixing problems, is to slow down. We are living in an age of trust on speed. And efficiency and speed are the enemy of trust. Trust actually needs some friction. It needs for us to find the right information to ask the right questions, to slow down and to say, is this person, is this thing, is this product, is this piece of information, is it worthy of our trust? Trust cannot be automated by technology. It can't be fixed by compliance and regulation. Trust lies with us. We make the decisions as to who we give our trust to. And every time we think about this, I think we are taking control and trying to preserve what really is a fragile and precious asset, trust. Thank you very much. Rachel Botsman is author of Who Can You Trust?, She lectures at Oxford University and spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Find more festival coverage online and video of Botsman's full talk later today at CPR.org. While we're on the subject of trust, how confident are you that your ballot will be counted? I hope so. I'm pretty sure it will. Uh, I'm very confident that it's an accurate accounting of the the vote. Uh, Not that confident. That sampling from a street corner in downtown Denver reflects national polls. One in three Americans thinks a foreign government could actually change votes this election. But experts say Colorado's election security is some of the best in the nation. CPR's Nathaniel Miner explains how a key part of that system came to be. Let's start this story in the year 2000. Bush versus Gore, hanging chads in Florida. An election in turmoil, a presidency in the balance. A nation waits. Paper ballots took a lot of heat, and so the country started to move away from them. Congress passed a law to modernize voting machines. When I first voted in Connecticut, the equipment I used to vote then is the equipment I've used today. And that's true in so many different states, and we hope to improve that. Electronic machines were supposed to be the wave of the future. 
In Boulder, though, one guy was skeptical. Neil McBurnett is a computer scientist, and he's been thinking about security for a long time. Democracy is hugely important, and recognizing the threats long before anyone was talking about Russia or cyber attacks has been a big motivator for me. And it may seem counterintuitive, but this tech guy really wanted election officials to stick with paper. And it became immediately clear to me as a computer scientist that we couldn't trust computers to tell us the results of an election. We had to actually look at the paper ballots. If paper ballots are tracked carefully, they become an unhackable record of an election. If there's any question about whether votes were counted correctly, McBurnett says you can go back and check the paper. Still, in the mid-2000s, Colorado counties moved toward e-voting machines, and that very nearly included Boulder. Um, The previous clerk looked like she was on a path where she wanted to use more electronic equipment. Hillary Hall is the Boulder County clerk and recorder. She credits McBurnett and others with making sure that that didn't happen. Our citizens really engaged our commissioners, and through that, we ended up with a model where everyone would vote on a mail ballot unless you uh, wanted to use the accessible equipment. And within a few years, the whole state moved in that direction. In 2012, 70% of voters got their ballot through the mail. The next year, state lawmakers made all mail-in ballots the standard. Part of that was to increase access. But it also meant that now almost every vote in the state is cast on a paper ballot. And just as McBurnett imagined, now election officials have a way to check and make sure that computers that count those ballots do it right. And just as importantly, the checks happen regularly. There is a bag of dice. This is from an audit last year. Eight. The number eight has been rolled. The dice generate random numbers, which are used to pull paper ballots to check against how they were counted. Do that enough times, says Secretary of State Wayne Williams, and you can be confident an election was counted correctly and that no one interfered with it. That's why we can say in Colorado that nobody in Moscow and nobody in Beijing changed a single vote in our state. But even so, it's clear there's a lack of confidence in the electoral system right now. Williams acknowledges part of that is because of his fellow Republican, President Trump. When Trump says elections are rigged, Williams says it undermines people's trust. Yes, it causes challenges for me. Do I wish everybody would say things that were correct all the time? Yeah, that'd make my life a whole lot easier. An election security expert I met recently says Colorado has earned the right to people's confidence. David Becker is with the Center for Election Innovation and Research, a nonpartisan think tank in Washington, D.C. Colorado is one of those states, and there are others, that is really at the forefront of making elections as accessible and easy for voters as possible, while also demonstrating the integrity of their process. And if you still don't believe your vote will count, election officials like Williams say you're more than welcome to get involved and see how the process works for yourself. Colorado takes volunteers or temp workers to be election judges. And those audits, those are open to the public, too. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. There are a lot of superlatives with our next guest. He works on some of the highest mountains in some of the lowest temperatures, studying animals around the world that are among the most vulnerable to climate change. And he uses some of the weirdest tactics, like dressing up as a polar bear. Joel Berger is a professor at Colorado State University and a senior scientist with the Wildlife Conservation Society. His latest book is called Extreme Conservation. And Joel, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Take me to one of the places where you have dressed up as a polar bear and maybe help us explain why you did that. (laughs) So imagine February 
imagine an island north of the Arctic Circle in Russia. And that's where I've been working. And I dress up like a polar bear, not to act like an idiot on purpose, <laughs> but there are more polar bears on land because the ice is receding. And if we want to understand how animals are going to respond to a new system with a new predator on land, we have to look through the eyes of the polar bear. Which is the predator in that case. And so what's the prey that might be terrified by you in a polar bear suit? <laughs> so I'm not sure how many listeners know what a muskox is, but a muskox is this animal that's more closely related to a sheep and a goat, but it has long woolly hair. It lives in tundra only, and it used to roam with woolly mammoths and sabred cats, but those went extinct. But the muskox are still with us. And with climate change uh, changing, how polar bears act and where they are, that clearly has an effect on the prey, on the muskox. Yeah, we're trying to get a handle on how muskox are going to respond to yet another predator and yet another challenge in their system. And they occur, muskox occur in Greenland. They interact with polar bears there, but nobody knows much about it. They occur in the Canadian Arctic, Alaskan Arctic, and also the Russian Arctic. And as a scientist, we actually can't just like drive out where some people might in Serengeti or in Yellowstone and watch interactions. And so we simulate the interactions and take data. Do the muskox believe that you're a polar bear? And do you run into other polar bears? And what is their level of belief? <laughs> I'm a real believer because when I'm dressed as a, as a polar bear, on my uh, elbows and knees, wandering out in the winter in serious snow and cold, I don't want to run into a real polar bear, but I have. Um, but to your first question, how do the muskox deal with it? They think I'm a real polar bear. And the way I know that is because I also dress as a caribou. And caribou don't eat muskoxen. And the muskoxen ignore me when I'm Mr. Caribou or Ms. Caribou. But uh, the muskox don't ignore the fake polar bear. Now, the good is that the few times I've run into real polar bears, yeah. they've had newborns and they go the other way because they don't want to interact even if they know I'm a real polar bear or a fake polar bear or not, they just go the other way. So I'm still here and able to talk to you, Ryan. Yes, I'm, I'm glad of that. And uh, you are uh, along the way documenting the reactions of the musk oxen, uh, helping uh, the world understand uh, their reaction to this predator that is having to make changes itself, the polar bear, because of climate change. Uh, what What is the polar bear outfit look like? I mean, is it something that you you must have to pack with you when you travel to these places? Yeah, so the polar bear outfit is a styrofoam head. The Russians gave me a, 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 a sniper suit so I would blend in better with the snow because the Russians actually liked me and I liked them on the ground working with them. And so I blend it in uh, and crawl along. Um, I have the cheap version. It's probably the $800 version. We did approach Hollywood and ask for a $20,000 polar bear donation for some of their fake polar bears, but um, they're good Americans and the capitalism reigned, and so we're using the $800 version <laughs> instead. And the sniper suit, I gather, is white to match the snow. It but, is. Yeah, and also pull off the polar bear situation. And the caribou outfit? Uh, the caribou also is uh, not a very good fake, but good enough 
because we know that the muskoxen are not responding. And in the wild, muskox don't really respond to caribou. And the fake one, they don't. But it's a styrofoam head. It has removable fake antlers, which are made out of little uh, plastic pipes. And then I have a cape that goes over me. A cape. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Joel Berger. He's a professor of wildlife conservation at Colorado State University, and his latest book is Extreme Conservation, Life at the Edges of the World. He is on a mission to understand climate change and how it is affecting species in some of the most extreme conditions in the world and some of the most vulnerable animals. Is this generally seen as a mainstream scientific approach to to sort of emulate what you're studying? It's it's, it's a great question, Ryan. Thanks for asking. Sure. Um, many of the scientists who work with climate change challenges to animals. We do a lot of simulations. We do a lot of modeling. We do a lot of predictions based on complicated math. But we don't have much data on real changes. We do know that the ranges of some species are changing, but in this case, we've got a new predator-prey interaction. That's the one in the Arctic that I've just talked about. But also in the Himalayas, we have species that are endangered, species like wild yaks. We have some of the the world's largest wild sheep. We have snow leopards. We don't have a good handle on how the changing and warming climates and the loss of snow or ice are affecting species. And so this might not be mainstream, but there isn't a mainstream because many people aren't doing these kind of studies mm. just because of logistics, accessibility, working with countries on the edge, places like uh, parts of China, places like parts of Russia, where they're hard to get into. What do you think has been your greatest epiphany in the polar bear research in particular? One of the, another very good question. So we also work in Arctic Alaska where we have grizzly bears that prey on musk oxen. Grizzly bears are pretty good at running and they can run long distances up to three miles when they chase species. And the musk ox don't run in um, Arctic Alaska from grizzly bears. But in Russia, they figured out that polar bears overheat or at least are not good at chasing. And so what we're seeing is in the mind of the muskox, they've actually figured out certain things about the major predators. Grizzly bears are good chasers, and we all know the news when you run into a bear. Don't run. I also imagine that the the people, the human beings around these animals are critical to their future. Uh, and if, if you've got new predators and new predator-prey interactions happening in places that they haven't before. Uh, I, I wonder to what extent people placing an importance on conservation or understanding those animals plays into the whole question here. Most of my work is with indigenous people. I like to get on the ground and look through the eyes of a small squadron of helpers with whom I work. And I do it because they understand the landscapes better than me. They've lived there for anywhere from hundreds of years with ancestry going back 10 or 15,000 years. And so I can learn through their eyes. And I think uh, pretty much as we dovetail two different types of interest, me as a Western scientist, uh, they as people who are eking out a living on the ground, 
we come to new ways at looking and appreciating wildlife. At least that's the hope. What do you mean? Like, how, how might their appreciation differ from yours? Um, I come in as a scientist wanting to understand how animals tick, how they change, and potentially why. The people who live on the ground, if it's in a national park they rec- or a protected area, they recognize that the species are inviolate, that mm-hmm. they basically have a right. But outside of protected areas, there are oftentimes a lot of potential conflicts. And I think, at least through the people that I'm working with, they start to realize these animals are pretty interesting, and if they're not immediately affecting their economies, we'll say eating their sheep or their goats or attacking um, their kids, there's an existence value, and they're coming to understand that. At least that's how some of us are trying to approach and look at how we maintain more species on the ground. Some buy-in essentially from indigenous peoples as climate change encroaches. Joel Berger, professor of wildlife conservation at Colorado State University and a senior scientist with the Wildlife Conservation Society. His latest book is Extreme Conservation, Life at the Edges of the World. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado has some of the highest voter turnout in the country and still 30 percent of eligible adults sat out the last election. Why? The best answers probably come from non-voters themselves. I don't drive my car when it's broken. and The system's broken. People need to acknowledge that. I'm Sam Brash, host of our election podcast, Purplish. This week, what really gets non-voters to vote? Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. All good stories start with a question. And this one comes from Kethry Warren. When she drives on I-25 in Denver, she sees a yellow structure some 85 feet tall. And through Colorado Wonders, she asks, what's up with the noodle sculpture? CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf investigates. Warren told me she calls it a noodle sculpture because to her, it looks like a piece of bow tie pasta. I totally get that from certain angles. Today, I'm here with Gwen Chancet. She's basically the go-to expert on this artwork. I've heard articulated wall described as a number of things. So there's a stack of French fries, even cheese sticks. What do you make of this sculpture, though? What does it mean to you? Because people have dubbed it various names, that means they're looking. And I suppose that's a very good thing. Chancet is director of museum studies at DU. For years, she oversaw the Denver Art Museum's Herbert Beyer Collection and Archive. Beyer designed Articulated Wall, which the museum now owns. The sculpture was constructed in 1985. It was the final commission for Beyer. He died later that year. Beyer himself realized that sculpture today is not the way it was in the times of the Renaissance when you had a pedestrian walking along slowly and seeing sculpture. He understood that people would see this sculpture from a very busy highway. So he realized that as you went by in a speeding vehicle, the sculpture would change shape. The sculpture sits in a private parking lot at the Denver Design District. People can come and look, but Chancet says Beyer would have made some scenic changes. Had he lived, I am 100% sure that he would have built a park with berms and recesses and a place for people to relax. We're sitting on the concrete steps here, and he wouldn't have had that happen. Chancet and I leave for the Denver Public Library's central branch. The art museum recently gave the buyer archive to the library so the public could have better access to materials like letters, speeches, journals, and photographs. 
At the library, we meet senior archivist Abby Haverstock. Some of the boxes look like they're pretty well organized. Well, see, he was really meticulous. We dig through the contents. Gwen Chancet grabs one folder. Okay, I'm going to just pull out a couple of pictures so that you can see how it was built. The photos show a crane lifting and stacking the pieces of articulated wall. In another folder, there are copies of a speech Bayer gave about his articulated wall in Mexico City. Yep, you heard correctly. There's another articulated wall. It's the original and looks like the Denver one except 25 feet shorter. The developer of the Denver Design District commissioned Bayer to make the Denver look alike. Bayer wrote that he considered the highway, quote, an issue worth the attention of an artist. I'll read you something. Let me find a part. Bayer wrote, quote, In designing my structure, I allowed for a maximum view. This view changes radically when directly passing it. Bayer was born in Austria in 1900. He enrolled in the famed Bauhaus German Art School when he was 21. Chancet considers him the Bauhaus exemplar. The Bauhaus said that you should practice all the different disciplines and integrate them into uh, a total design. Bayer indeed did many things. He was a graphic designer, architect, painter, sculptor, photographer, the list goes on. It was his exhibition design skills that first brought Bayer to New York in the late 1930s to design three major shows for the Museum of Modern Art. Bayer then immigrated to the U.S., but he was unhappy in Manhattan. About that time, businessman Walter Pepke saw Bayer's talent. Pepke wanted to transform a relatively unknown Colorado mountain town into a cultural and intellectual destination. That town was Aspen. He convinced Bayer to join him there in 1946. So Aspen was really like a Bauhaus dream in the sense that you took every aspect of, of life and you designed well for it. Pepke founded the Aspen Ski Company and Aspen Institute. Bayer designed for both organizations. He even designed for the ground. His 1955 grass mound is a lawn sculpted into mounds and recesses. That was a spot for people to relax, to sit and uh, maybe read and converse. It wasn't meant to be high art. Bayer also designed early ski advertisements, menus, and developed a new typeface. His legacy there is a way of thinking. Chancet says when Bayer left Colorado in the 70s for health reasons, he called it a tragedy. Archiving the Herbert Bayer papers at the library will make them available for study in ways the museum couldn't. The museum hopes it leads to a deeper understanding of the breadth of Bayer's work beyond the widely viewed articulated wall. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. And if you're interested in seeing more of Herbert Bayer's work, there's an exhibition of his photography at the Aspen Institute through the summer. And if something in Colorado makes you go, huh? Tell us about it through Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. Finally today, Denver artist Megan Burt recently teamed up with fellow singer-songwriter Zach Berkman from New York to form a new band. Every member happens to be a redhead, and they call themselves Ginger Bum. I had the name because I secretly, not secret anymore, want to be a DJ. And I had this name when I would one day become a DJ that I would be DJ Ginger Bomb. But I realized that we could create a band, make a record, and launch a band faster than I would become a DJ. So I just donated the name. Then we sort of reached our tentacles out into our social networks and let everybody know that we were looking for the most talented and most redheaded people. <laughs> we could find. That's right. 
They may be playful with the name, but they are serious about the music, with a sound they describe as the Avid Brothers meets Fleetwood Mac. Hear for yourself with the band's lead single, Wildfire. She gonna take her sweet time She gonna take it slow You're gonna find when she makes up her mind She going where she wanna go Wildfire by Ginger Bomb. To hear their full performance studio session with CPR's open air, head to CPR.org. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News in Centennial.